And we'll carry on here talking about our identity and who we really are. Before we do that, I had another announcement that I wanted to share, and that's just another bit of family news uh, with our, our church family here. I've been, re- been reminded for a couple of weeks, and it's funny, you can remind me of something just before the service and I'll forget. So go ahead and try it sometime. But um, my brother Sean, Sean Wood has reminded me a couple of weeks that, that Sean has a job. He's working at Par Lumber now with his, uh, with his brother Scott. He just wanted to share that with his church family. You folks know and that means a lot to him. So well done, Scott. Congratulations. Sean, well done, Sean. Congratulations. I say, I, I've called him Scott twice this morning because he told me he works with his brother Scott there. So now I have Scott on the brain. So now I know Scott and Sean. All right. Good to... Good to share those, uh, those joys as family together. You know, I was, I, I, I was speaking of my passport. I was, in, I was a victim of identity theft recently. Somebody stole my identity, and they thought they would, they would co-opt our identity to try and, and claim a big tax refund. Well, they were disappointed. <laughs> Talk about the wrong target. There wasn't any big refund to steal. In fact, they didn't get a, they didn't, there wasn't enough of a refund to pay the $59 or so that Quicken or that uh, TurboTax charges to file online in somebody else's name. And so we got the bill for their identity theft. That's how we found out about the whole, the whole, the whole deal. I don't know what all it will mean in the future, probably more trouble still, but even though I was a victim of identity theft, even though somebody else could pretend to be me, whatever value that was, apparently not much, they couldn't take my identity from me. They couldn't change who I was. But what if somebody could do that? What if somebody could, could not merely pose to be you, but what if they could take your identity away from you? What if they were able to even convince me that I wasn't me, that I was somebody else? What if they were able to convince you that you're not really who you are, you're actually somebody else? You are you, aren't you? Or are you? Who are you really? Identity is very important. And, and you realize how important your identity is once somebody begins to fiddle with it. Well, I want to suggest to you that people have been fiddling with your identity for a long time, and they will continue. So every time you hear those lifelock adverts, just remember, yeah, that's right, somebody is fiddling with my identity, and I need to lock down who I really am. That's what I want to talk about this morning. When everything around us is unsettled, changed, uncertain, confused, we need to know who we are and what to do about it, or what to do with that identity. We're, we're, we're starting a series in 1 Peter this morning. And, and I've, been, I've been wanting to get into 1 Peter for a while. I've been tugged between the prophets and Peter, the prophets and Peter, and we're, we're, we're finally going to make the jump. And we're going to dive into this, but we're not going to dive far. We're going to d- look at chapter, chapter 1, verse 1 this morning. In fact, we're going to look really at two words in verse 1, but just a little bit about 1 Peter before we even get that far into it. Uh, 1 Peter is what's called an encyclical. You've heard that word lately, haven't you? You've heard this word encyclical. The Pope wrote an encyclical. What is that? An encyclical is simply a circular letter. It's a letter that's meant to go to a bunch of different people. 
So Peter writes an encyclical, a circular letter. And uh, um, a version of that today actually might be the Gospel Coalition or John Piper's Desiring God blog. It's a, it's a letter that goes out that it's meant for, for multiple people to read and benefit from. So you also get encyclicals. But, but the Pope's encyclicals, a lot of people don't realize this, the Pope's encyclicals, so you're all jazzed up about his environmental encyclical in one way or the other, relax a little bit. The Pope's encyclical letters, his circular letters, are not infallible. Neither are John Piper's, okay? Just, just, just so you know. But we have an encyclical. We have a circular letter that is infallible, that is authoritative, that can be trusted. These are words that we can lean on when there are so many voices around us that are telling us to do this or to do that. Encyclical diaspora. I'm going to come back to that word in just a minute, so just hang with me. But these letters that typically convey a solidarity a unity, a belonging together, a solidarity of people widely scattered in the world, but sharing in the same shared identity and a similar experience, often an experience of suffering, of difficulty, awaiting vindication, looking for a time when things will change, when things will be different, things will be better. Let me read our text for this morning. It won't take long. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect ex exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter's writing a letter. He's writing a letter to some people. He's writing a letter to some people in this particular province. And as he opens the letter, he introduces himself, which is good, so we know who the letter is from. And then he says to those who are elect exiles. And first, I want, to, I want to focus on that word elect because it troubles a lot of us. We hear that word, we hear this term, this theological term election, and I don't mean the political term election because that's its own mess, but this theological term election also seems to cause us some trouble. The, the, I want to talk about what it means. It's, it's, first of all, it's an incomprehensible term. The election, it means to choose. God has chosen. When God calls them the elect, and, and he does this through Peter, he does this through, through, through Paul. They are the elect. They are God's chosen. And we're, we're concerned about that because of what else it might mean. I want to I just talk a little bit about that term this morning if I can. First of all, election is incomprehensible. We can't understand it. There are some things about God that we can't fully understand. We can understand something about them. We cannot fully comprehend them. Let me give you an example. Jeremiah chapter 18. I'm still stuck in the prophets. Jeremiah 18, he gives the illustration of a, of a potter with a potter's wheel. And there's clay on the wheel. And the potter is making a, a clay vessel. And things happen, and, and, and it changes, and he makes something else out of that clay. But the, but the example is God is God as the creator. God is the potter, and Israel is represented in that clay pot that is being formed, or, or humanity is there. The, things that God, the thing that God has made is there in that clay pot. Now, if he is the potter, and I'm the pot, the Bible says that God's ways are, as, as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far are God's ways above my ways, I can't comprehend. That any more than that clay pot is able to comprehend and define and fully understand and grasp the potter who formed it, 
that's the same extent that we are unable to fully understand and grasp, define and explain our God. So if there's some things about God, like the Trinity, that you don't fully get and grasp and understand, that's okay. The hidden things, the secret things, Deuteronomy says, belong to God. The things that he has revealed belong to us and to our children. There are things we're given to know. There are things about God that he's shown and explained to us. There are things about God we cannot fully understand. And if you fully understand God, if you fully comprehend God, you as a clay pot fully understand the potter who made you, your God is too small. You you are understanding, you are comprehending of God of your own making, not the God who made you. You see how it works? So don't be too bothered if this whole notion of choose an election is a little bit incomprehensible to you. God does not answer to us, but he's chosen to reveal himself to us. God does not answer to us. Election, God choosing, God determining to choose some people for salvation, elect to be his children, to belong to him. God choosing some seems to collide with free will, doesn't it? Actually, there's no such thing as free will. Romans chapter 3 says that none seeks after God. Nobody seeks after God. Unless God acted persuasively to draw some to himself, nobody would be saved. 1 Peter 1.3 says that God, look at, look, look at verse 3, we'll jump down there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. God caused us to be born again. Did you get that? Wait a minute, you thought, I, wait a minute, I heard somebody, they explained it, and I decided to believe, absolutely. And yet, Peter's got to be right, because this is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father who caused us to be born again. God has done this. Because I wasn't seeking after God. I love the way Vernon McGee talks about it. I was running away from him just as fast as I can, and finally he caught up with me, grabbed hold of me, and drug me down. God got hold of me. I was running away as fast as I could. None seeks after God. God's plan works salvation in the midst of what is. I'm free to do whatever pleases me, but I'm not free concerning what pleases me. Say so what? Yeah, now, now it's that pot and potter thing going on again. What, what, what are you talking about, Bob? I am, fr- I am free to choose the things that please me, but I'm not free about what pleases me, which is going to direct my choosing. For instance, you give me a choice. Lori invites me over to dinner. That is so nice of you. And she says, Bob, we can have steak or we could have liver. (laughs) What am I going to choose? I can't help myself. I'm going with the steak. I don't like liver. Now, there was some compelling thing when I was a kid. I was trying to so, so hard to impress my dad. My dad liked liver, and I still don't understand that. There's things about your father you don't understand. I don't understand why he liked liver, but I liked liver because he liked liver. At least I told myself I did. But even then, I didn't really. And so when the pressure was off to please dad, and I could choose what I wanted to eat, liver hasn't been on the menu since. <laughs> Sorry, Laurie, no liver. See, I'm free to choose, but I'm not free about what I will choose. I'm not free about what what I please. That's in me. I can't make myself like liver if I don't. Okay, the analogy breaks down, but but I, I, 
I can't make myself seek after God because as a fallen, depraved human being, I don't seek after God until the Spirit comes in. And the Spirit causes me to long for God. That's, that's something God has changed in me. So now, now you wonder, God, why don't you working in me? Is there something in you that longs for God? Is there something in you that wants to know him? Is there something in you that aches when you've, when you've drawn back or, 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 or pulled away or, or neglected your prayer and devotion? Is there something in you that, 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 that pulls at you when that's so? That's God's working in you because he is working in you, drawing you after himself because he has chosen you. God changes what's in us. God changes what's, what pleases us. God has chosen to intervene. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So we've got Paul, we've got Peter, we've got Jesus saying the same thing here. No one comes to God unless the Father draws him. The Father draws us. God has chosen to intervene. Now, here's a, here's a hard one. God does not intervene for everyone. All of humanity is headed to destruction, and God m- mercifully saves some. And yet, he does not save all of them. As part of the mystery, I don't fully understand, but I do know this. Acts 13, 48, the crowd together heard Paul preach. They heard Paul explain the gospel, and then among them, as they explained the gospel, they heard Paul preach, as many as were ordained for eternal life believed. It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And yet it's only those who were ordained for eternal life who did believe. Acts 13, 48. Now, that's not inconsistent with human freedom. Let me give an example. Charles, Charles Ryrie gives this example of God's decree and yet our, the choices that we make and trying to put the two of those together. God is omniscient. God is sovereign. Does God know the day that you will die? Yes, he does. Unless we revert to a heresy called open theism, which says that it's all up for grabs, that God doesn't determine anything in the future, that God is not in control of the future, it's all up to us. Think about that. That's a scary proposition. So, God knows the day that I will die. Well, could I die one day earlier than the day God knows? Well, no. God knows the day that I will die. That's the day that I will die because God knows the day that I will die. Well, what if I stop eating then? I just stop eating. You'll die. Was well, that then the day that I would die? Well, now we're asking questions. We needn't ask. Instead, just eat. Because you eat to live. See, one of the great ways to get the wrong answers is to ask the, right, is to ask the wrong questions. Well, if God has ordained for me to live and God has given me life and days, well, what should I do for those days? I should Eat. Well, if God, if, God, um, has a, has, if God knows the day that I will die, then can I go play on the freeway today? <laughs> I was asking the wrong questions. So there, 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 see, it's, it's not inconsistent with human freedom. Why pray? God's going to do what God's going to do. And yet God does what God does. God intervenes where God intervenes in answer to prayer. And so we pray. Well, if I don't pray, then that change what God's not going to do? God has told us he will act, and God has told us to pray. So we put those things together. You know, it's, it's difficulty, this whole notion of, of um, human responsibility and God's sovereign plan. God's sovereign plan doesn't negate human responsibility. I'm, I'm throwing out a lot of things that are in our minds about election. I realize that. Let me, let me give you another one. 
Let's take all of human history. In all of human history, there's this ongoing God's sovereignty, and yet humans are making choices. And humans are responsible for the choices that they make. I'm not going to go through all of history. Let's just take the center of it. What is the center of human history? You know this one. It's the cross. That's right. There's the intersection of human history right there at the cross. And at the cross, the Jesus must die. God's eternal plan. He is, he is the lamb slain since before the foundation of the world. It has been decreed. God has said, this shall be. And yet, Pilate makes the decision early that morning to crucify him. Pilate is responsible for his decision. And yet the son must die. Judas was responsible for his decision late the night before to betray Jesus into the hands of the chief priests. Judas is responsible for his decision to betray Jesus. And yet it must happen from before the foundation of the world. And every bit of history is the same way. God is sovereign, and yet we are responsible for what we do with it. Jesus said concerning that moment, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. That isn't going to be changed. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Judas will still be responsible, even though God knew and even decreed from the beginning that this, is how, that this would happen. God is not caught off guard. God is not surprised. With whatever latest event, decision, or change, God is not surprised. God has not been caught off guard. Election and human responsibility are parallel. I brought an object lesson for this. The kids are gone, but you can appreciate it. Just play along with me. Election, God choosing, and human decision and responsibility and what we like to take of, I'll say human will, I don't say so much free will because it's not as free as we think it is. We are, our will is bound toward depravity except for God's intervention. We live by the grace of God and the Spirit that overcomes that propensity towards sinfulness and rebellion against God. So we are not free. When we talk about free will, we, our will is free to sin as wildly as it can. So, so we want to take human responsibility and God choosing. This is, the, this is the line of truth through the Bible of God choosing. And this is the line of truth concerning human responsibility. And we want these two lines somewhere to intersect. Somehow our minds desperately want to take the fact that God chooses and yet I am responsible for my choices. We want to bring those lines logically together somehow, some way desperately trying to make sense of it all. But what if they're not supposed to intersect? What if those are simply parallel truths? Both are true. And both continue from beginning to end, from past into eternity, never intersecting both true. In fact, that's what makes a train run, isn't it? Two parallel lines that all of that rests upon and rolls forward on. And if ever those two parallel lines were to intersect, what would happen? The train would, would derail. Everything would be lost. So don't, don't force everything to have to come together and logically intersect. Some things don't. God has chosen. We are left to choose. Those two are parallel truths that continue. <laughs> Relax. Election takes you off the hook. So I don't want to witness that guy. Man, are you, uh, no, 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 oh, he's, pro he's probably not one of the elect. 
Great, I'm off the hook. I mean, man, look at the, I mean, somebody comes in and they, their, their clothes, the, the piercings, the, ta- no, people that are elect aren't marked like that. Well, how are they marked? They're actually a lot like you and I, aren't they? You know, that, the difficulty of election is that God hasn't marked them. If God only marked them, if God gave us a list, if I could go to our database and I could say, sort out for me all the people here around Brush Prairie that are elect, and we'll go after them. We'll invite them in. We'll say, hey, we heard. You're on God's list. Come on. And yet God hasn't done it that way. Wouldn't that simplify things? But God hasn't done it that way. So how will we find them? We will invite them. But you say, well, gee, I don't know if I should believe. You have, you have invited me to believe the gospel, that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. But you talk about this thing called election, and I don't know if I should believe, because what if I'm not elect? Well, Chuck Smith answers that this way. He was the founding pastor of Calvary Chapel. He, he said, well, if, if you're not one of the elect, well, then don't believe. What do you mean, don't believe? Maybe I want to believe. Maybe I want to be with God. Maybe I want to be reconciled to God and have a home in heaven for all of eternity. What's so bad about that? Why can't I believe? Well, you can believe. And whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Maybe you are one of the elect. Oh, but if I'm not, I can't believe. But then don't believe. And you're not, I say... We're trying to look at it from, when, from God's perspective, and we're here, and our part is to issue an invitation and to respond to it. I don't know who's elected and who's not, so I will issue the invitation to as many people as I can. And I pray that they will respond. And I, ha- I had somebody describe it to me this way, as an, as an archway into eternal life. And, and, and on one side of that archway, from, from our side of it, from what we see now, That archway says, whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And when we walk through that arch into eternal life, we look back and over our shoulder we see, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. I didn't know that was true of me until I believed. Until I believed, I didn't know that was true of me. If we acknowledge God as fully God and humanity is truly lost, then God's choosing you is a privilege that you cannot earn or repay, but it's a glory to live in. It's an identity to live in. God's choosing you makes everything okay no matter who rejects us. We are chosen exiles. Peter writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion. He lists a bunch of provinces there. And if you looked on a Bible map, you would find that those provinces, those Roman provinces that that Peter lists, he's writing to modern-day Turkey. Now, modern-day Turkey is a tough place to be a Christian. Uh, First-century Turkey wasn't necessarily an easy place to be a Christian either. But then, then the church grew there. The gospel grew there. It turned the world upside down there. And yet, look at the the uh, small witness of the Christian church in, in Turkey today. It's quite small in comparison. Few Christians in Turkey today. Uh, a, a place in need of the gospel. Imagine, imagine New York, or not New York, all of New England. Imagine here in the United States, New England, the center of the Great Awakening. And, and, the, and the gospel light that permeates society and towns and villages are changed radically so. Imagine if it were the case in New England today that, 
there was hardly a Christian that, that evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, were actually an oddity in society today in New England. Oh, wait, that's, that's kind of how it is in New England. But that's, that's, that's the change that's happened in, in Turkey as well. But it, it reminds us, in this day and age, it reminds us of the exile nature that Paul is writing about. Or rather, Peter, sorry. Peter is writing to chosen outcasts within their society. Elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, I said I'd talk about that word, so I probably should. It's a technical term. It was used for Jewish people scattered among the nations, away from their home, away from their country, temporary exiles. Those who were the diaspora were the dispersed. They were the scattered. Another way to consider that is to be sown like seed. So they're scattered far and wide, and, and uh, Peter is using that term that was used of Old Testament exile. He's using that term to, to refer to now Christians who are in these places. And, the, and he's probably talking to Jewish Christians, but they don't have a home to come back to in Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem in a few years is going to be wiped out. And so as Peter writes this letter early, early in the 60s, it's not so many years before the Romans are going to come and take Jerusalem away. And they will continue in that exile for an unknown period. And Peter is preparing them for that. He's preparing them to live as strangers who don't belong where they are in the world. And they feel like they don't belong. And when you feel like you don't belong, when you, when you have questions swirling about your identity, how do I live? How do I exist? What should I be and what should I do in this place where I find myself? And that's what Peter is writing to us. Peter is writing to show us how to live excellently in exile. He's showing us what it is to be God's exiles in the world. You are God's chosen. And yet, we are where we don't belong. The faithful are asking God, what is God doing? Where has God gone? Unbelievers in this whole diaspora thing are rejoicing at their victory, assuming that they have it right, that they have the high ground. And yet, it is not as they think. God will regather those that he's dispersed. God still owns them even as they are scattered. They are elect exiles. They are chosen outcasts. In fact, Peter's identify, identifying with them as elect chosen exiles, sojourners, strangers. It's not unlike his identification of himself. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter. Peter, the commissioned representative of a convicted, condemned, crucified criminal. And yet, Peter is the chosen, commissioned representative of the Son of God, the Lord of glory, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who Peter really is. And think about it. How did Peter become that apostle? How did Peter become that chosen messenger, that sent one from the King of kings, whom the world doesn't yet recognize, Peter's world or ours. And yet Peter is the sent one. Now, how did that fall to Peter? God looked out over all the earth and said, who would be best? Who would be the best possible messenger? Who would be? And then, for some reason, he chose Peter instead. Peter is known, in fact, one of the men mentioned it earlier in the week, Peter is known as the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. Peter is known to be somewhat unreliable. And yet, Peter was chosen. 
And when Peter, is, when Peter makes that grand confession, but whom do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Nobody else, not even yourself, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven revealed to you that which you have declared in faith. God chose Peter. And, and, and Jesus says, you are Peter, Simon, you are going to be Peter. You are going to be a rock. Wow. God is going to make this unstable one. This one who says, I'll never, I'll never fail you, and proceeds to fall away that very same night. And God makes him a rock. God makes him one who will die for his faith. God makes him one who will stand up boldly before a thousand and declare this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made to be both Lord and Christ. God did that with Peter, of all people, and I think it's wonderful. I think it's marvelous, because imagine what he'll also do with us. God has chosen us like he chose Peter. God has, God has sent us as exiles, as, as the dispersed, as those who are sown as seed to bear fruit, fruit that will endure forever. God has sent us like he sent Peter. For Peter to be the chosen apostle is like for us to be chosen outcast, to be God's elect exiles, representatives of the rejected one who is in fact the glorious one. This term, I, I had a quote for you here, these terms, elect and exiles, together sum up the recipient's identities, Christian's identities. These terms are nowhere else found in combination like this in, in the Bible. At first impression, they seem to point in different directions. One expresses the relationship to God, the other a relationship to human society. One of them seems to denote a privileged group, chosen. The other, a disadvantaged group, exiles, outsiders. Yet the two expressions do not limit or qualify each other. The addressees are strangers or exiles because of, not despite, but because they are chosen, they are outcast. Their divine election is a sociological and theological fact for it has sundered them from their social world and made them like strangers or temporary residents in their respective cities and proverbs. This is Peter's assumption and the basis on which he writes to them. This is a theme that's going to continue. Peter starts this way with this difficult thing called election because it's going to matter in what he has to say. Paul in Galatians 6.14 says, Far be it from me that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by, those by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There has been a change made. There has been a line drawn. Our Lord Jesus said this in John 15 verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. These two expressions, let me show you how they, how they, how they show up again in Peter. Look in, in chapter 1 still, verse 14. Verse 14 of chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Well, that's flattering, isn't it? The passions are, for some of your Bible versions, the lust of your former ignorance. All right, I feel good about that. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, 
for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You are called and you are in exile. And both of those together impact how we live, how we conduct ourselves here. That's why it matters. Look over at chapter 2. I think we'll start in verse Eight, the end of verse 8, they stumble, chapter 2, verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Now, that's its own difficulty. We'll get there when we get there. But verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as pilgrims and exiles, as those who don't belong here and yet are here. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We live as chosen outcasts. We do not belong here. And yet we are here. We belong to God. We, we don't belong here. And yet we are near to someone, to someone's, to people. We are exiles who are dispersed, who are scattered abroad in a world in which we don't belong. And yet we're here. We are temporary residents. Something I meant to show the kids. That's why I wanted somebody who could read nearby me. I, I wanted to show them that in my passport, right up in the front, there's a very important sticker. It's what allowed me to be in Swaziland because I didn't belong there. But I had permission to be a temporary resident. It reminded me of what I was doing there. I was a temporary resident there on mission while I was there. We belong to God. We are chosen. And yet we do not belong here, and yet we are here. And we are here to be near to others here, that we might represent the Lord of glory to them, that we might in extend the invitation by which God calls those he has also chosen. And we don't know who they are, so we're just going to have to spread the word. We're going to have to get the word out. We are on a, a, a privileged pilgrimage. There's a big difference between you don't belong and you don't belong here. You don't belong implies I better do something. I better change. I better do whatever it takes to belong because I want to belong. No, you don't belong here, but you do belong to God. Hebrews 11 talks about those who, who acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were desiring a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. You don't belong here, but you do belong. Ephesians 2.19 says that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of God's household. You are God's family. You belong to God. To know you're in exile but no longer from here, is to have permission to be different. That's what Peter is saying. It's to have permission to not conform or be conformed to this world. People around you will see things differently. People around you will respond differently to the events of society, and they won't get where you're coming from. 
We're not from here. We, we ought to have a different perspective. We ought to have a perspective that is built on God's perspective, that, that, that is founded on God's truth rather than our own feelings. Our own feelings can carry us all kinds of different ways. Even as Christians, if we try to understand the events of society around us by fruit instead of truth, if we try to make sense of this out of the fruit of love instead of making sense of things out of the truth of God's word and what God has revealed, we can find ourselves going astray. Don't be surprised if your perspective is different from people around you. Be willing to be different. You have permission to be different. God has called you to be different. Another word Peter uses is peculiar. It fits us well, don't you think? We are a peculiar people. Yes, we are. Now, some of you have gotten very good at being peculiar. We should probably talk about that, but that'll come along the way a little bit later. We're on a privileged pilgrimage. It's been that way all through history. It is that way today. It continues. Exile frees us from distractions. We can lay aside the notions about getting our country back. The facade is falling off. America is not a Christian country. America is a country full of people who desperately need Jesus, just like I desperately need Jesus. For too long, we have relaxed that we are privileged to live in a Christian country and that takes all the pressure off concerning the mission that God has set before us. We used to have an American flag set right over here. Do you remember that? Do you miss it being there? You do. Some of you do, at least. Surely you do. I changed that. And I'll say I. I didn't do it all on my own and by myself. But I'll take the heat for it. We took that American flag and we lined it up right in the middle with a bunch of other flags. And those are not random flags either. Those are all flags of countries around the world, including Jordan and uh, United Kingdom and Zimbabwe and Austria and Thailand, and I forget where else. Those are countries all around the world where we have a mission presence. And I wanted the flag of this country to sit right alongside the flags of those countries because this country and those countries are places that we as a church have a mission presence. God has set us here. God has dispersed us. God has scattered us as seed to bear fruit in all of these places. So I want you to see those flags and be reminded to pray not only for people that are in other lands who have been dispersed from us, but I want you to pray for our mission here. Those are all of the places, including this place, that we as a church have been given and have responsibility for a mission presence. You belong to God. You don't belong here. And yet we do live alongside those who are here. And the prophet Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in, in Jeremiah 29. I told you I'm still stuck in the prophets. He, he, he wrote to them this. He said, seek the well-being of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its well-being, you will find your well-being. In its prosperity, you will find prosperity. And the word that's used there is the, is the word for that life well-being, that shalom. That's where the fullness of life will come from. As you bring it to them, you'll find it. Could it be that as we most and best give ourselves away 
in seeking to extend the eternal life to those around us, that's where we'll truly find our own life. Didn't Jesus say, the one who seeks to save his own life, to, to conserve it, to preserve it, to store it up and keep it for himself, the one who seeks to save his life will lose it. But the one who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the kingdom, Jesus said, will find it. That's what we'll find. Jeremiah tells us that we will find our spiritual prosperity in sharing that spiritual prosperity with the people around us. Daniel tells us what that looks like. He shows us that even among the pagans, what it is to keep his integrity of faith himself and then to invite others, including the king, to also trust in God and believe God's word. And and the fascinating thing about the book of Daniel is it seems in the end of chapter 4 that the king himself actually did. He actually did believe that testimony that Daniel gave. Peter tells us to keep our integrity to keep our faith, to live as those who don't belong here, but to live for those whom we live near. That's why. That's why we're doing some of the things we're doing this summer. That's why we have summer jazz in the park. Last year it was out here, and a bunch of you came, but this year it's going to be down in Louisville Park on July 25th. We're going to have summer jazz there because people are there already. We don't have to invite them there. We just have to welcome them to join us in sharing good music together. And then the following week, we're actually going to have worship. August 2nd, we're going to have our worship service in Louisville Park at the Big Shelter. Not here. You can come here and have a wonderful time, the three of you. The rest of us will be down at Louisville Park. We're going to worship where the people already are, and then we're going to share our picnic with. Our annual picnic is going to be there then, August 2nd. And we're going to invite them to share a hamburger with us. And who knows what neighbors we might meet? Who knows who you could bring that would say, that's weird, you're having church in the park. Yeah, I'll go. Who wouldn't necessarily come with you here? We do these things. We do things like vacation Bible camp. We we send a team to India. We we have a fireworks stand where a bunch of people with Brush Prairie t-shirts are being just as nice and kindly as they can while they take their money. But there's an opportunity to have a presence in the community and to tell all those who come and with their kids and all oh, they can't wait to have something to explode. And, and, and yet those kids too, hey, we're going to have a vacation Bible camp next week. Take one of these flyers with you too. Who knows? Maybe some of those will come along here. Maybe there'll be children. Maybe from children there'll be families. And maybe some of those, someone's going to come into that stand and we won't see it but they are marked. They are chosen. God knows them. And he's going to give us the chance to know them too. Isn't that exciting? I don't know who you're going to meet this afternoon that God already knows and he wants you to know. My time is gone. So let me, let me close with, I forgot what I was going to close with. At the end of the service, we're going to greet one another again before we go. And when you do that, I want you to remember that you are special. You are chosen exiles, okay? And if you are exiles, if you are outcast, there are, there's probably some discouragement among us. It's important that we, as chosen outcasts, that we encourage one another. We receive one another. We embrace one another. 
We live out that, that shared identity in community together to strengthen ourselves all the more to be different and to make a difference in the community that God has set us in. All right? Be that for one another for the sake of all. We're going to receive our offering in just a minute. If you heard something about some of those ministries that Pastor Evan was talking about earlier, you want to be involved, use your white card for that. If you want to give a gift to help support those that are going to India, you can use the envelope and write India Mission on it, and that will go to them, cost on the ground, or, or whatever is needed. I don't even know what the particulars are, but I'm sure there are needs. And uh, let's, let's pray for one another in how we live out this chosen outcasts, scattered as seed that God has called us to be. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We thank you, Father, that you have chosen us, that you have rescued us from ourselves. We thank you, Father, that you have intervened and you still intervene. Lord, we're not home. We're not home yet. Lord, guard us from being too much at home here. Lord, instead, remind us of what you've called us to do and to be here. Lord, use us in your mission. As you continue to call, as you continue to intervene, as you continue to rescue, as you continue to save, Father, would you give us the privilege of being used by you? Lord, we know that you would put your finger in a pond and the ripples would go far beyond what we could now see. Lord, would you, by your grace, use us as your finger? Would you use us in some way to disrupt what is that you'd use us as ones through whom you would call others to eternal life? Give us glimpses of it along the way that you might not be discouraged in a sometimes unwelcoming place. Strengthen us by your grace, Lord, for the work of your glory. We pray it in 